hey, I want to warn you right out of the gate, and this is really my heart when we talk about prayer. Um, There's a part of me that just feels like, um, I guess I'd say it to you this way, if we were to rebrand bigger, better, and beyond, I would call it a contrarian's guide to prayer. Because I feel like in prayer, this is not, by the way, a season to teach you new ways to ask the same old things. In other words, I feel like so much of prayer, especially in a Western culture of prayer, prayer revolves around, God, here are the things that I need from you, and then by way of my obedience and honor of you, you'll do as many of them as I qualify for. So I'm going to ask you for 17 things, and then at the end of asking you for 17 things, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to worship, I'm not going to cuss when somebody cuts me off on the road, and then um, at least I'm going to use Christian cuss words and throw in a few substitutes there, and then I'm going to treat my spouse really, really well, and I'm going to try to try to worship and listen to worship music and not secular music, and then maybe I'll get 15 out of the 17 things that I've asked for, right? And then all of a sudden, prayer becomes this space that revolves around me. It revolves around the things I ask for. It revolves around the things that I do and don't get from God. And it turns into this just ask and receive, ask and receive. Now, hear me. I am a asker when it comes to prayer. I'm not saying asking is bad by any means. But here's what I'm saying. If asking is the totality of your prayer life, you are missing a deeper level of intimacy with God. Hear me here. I'm not smashing on asking, but I also want to do this. I want to have an entire season on prayer where we don't talk about how to ask God for anything right? We don't talk about what it looks like to ask God for this or, to ask, or how do we ask God for this. Look, he is the same God who said, ask, seek, and knock. I'm a big believer in ask. James says, you have not because you ask not. I'm not telling you to leave here and don't ask God for anything, right? But what I am telling you is this. If you recognize this pattern in your prayer life, that you wake up in the morning, you open your notes app, and you have 11 things that you're praying for, and you ask God for those 11 things, and then you wonder to yourself, is there more I should do or not more that I should do, or have I done it all? and I wonder when these things will come true, and then leave your prayer life at that, what I'm saying to you is this. There is a far greater intimacy for you in the sacred space of prayer where God will use who he is to transform us by way of prayer. That's what I want to get you to to a place of prayer where, um, you, let me just read to you Jesus' instructions, okay? Matthew 6, 5 through 10, receive this, right? When they come to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray, I want you to hear what Jesus says. Now, this has been turned into the, Lord, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and, and everyone is like, well, you know, do we decide, recite it? Is it application? Is it this, that, or the other? Um, I want to read to you the instructions before that. Listen to what Jesus himself says about prayer. So they say, teach us to pray. Very well, Matthew 6, 5 through 10. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. Verse 6, but when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father 
in private. You already get this image when Jesus is teaching on prayer to go to an intimate space and meet with God alone and encounter the God of the universe and experience him in a place that is private, that is not seen, that's not put on display, where it's just you and just him and you interact with one another. And then he says, but then your father who sees everything will reward you. Verse 7, really interesting on prayer. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask. Isn't it interesting? Jesus' second point on prayer. Point number one, be intimate. Get away. Commune with God. Go to a place private where you can just meet with him. Number two, don't talk too much. Number two, be quiet. Quit babbling. Quit talking. Quit going on and on and on and on like the Gentiles do and quit asking the same old things in new ways, in repetitive ways, hoping, well, this has been on here a year. I'm coming up on number 365 of praying this exact thing. Let me send it up again and see if it gets to you this time, right? He says, number one, don't talk too much. Number two, quit asking over and over and over again. Isn't that interesting? Like I told you, contrarian's guide to prayer, right? If our prayer lives become merely us asking for what we want, need, or hope God to do, that's a prayer life that revolves around who? Us. Prayer is not about us. Prayer is about the God of the universe giving us space to encounter him to meet with him, to enter into his presence, to experience him in a deeper way. Remember, I'm not smashing on asking. Ask God, ask God, ask God, but do it within the context of what we talk about today and next week and the week after, and your asking will be transformed. It won't be asking in accordance to you. It will be asking in accordance to who God is, right? So he says, don't talk too much. Number two, don't ask the same things over and over and over again, but do this. Pray like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he continues on, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Isn't it interesting? This is during the Sermon on the Mount and there's plenty of uprising and resistance against Christianity and there's an invitation to come and teach us to pray. And Jesus says, let me teach you exactly how to pray. Don't talk too much. Don't ask over and over again, and instead, let it be a space where you meet with God, invite his kingdom to come, and ask him to just meet the needs of the day and to look after you during that day. Why? Because prayer is not about asking, it's about experiencing. 
We have to understand this. Prayer is not about asking God for things. It is about experiencing God for all that he is and in all that he has. And by way of experiencing him in a way that is bigger than everything that we experience or anything that we experience in his magnanimous nature, when we experience him in that way, we will ask him for things differently because prayer is not a transaction. Prayer is an interaction. Prayer is a space where I commune with God and he communes with me and I meet with him and he meets with me. Our early church fathers, this is so interesting to study from Augustine to uh, Luther was a big proponent of this and Calvin all talked about, in fact, it was a, a phrase they used, lecto divine. Lecto divina was the phrase. It's Latin for into the divine. And they would talk over and over about what it meant to enter into the divine. And you know what they did in those moments? Spoke very little. They talked very, very little. In fact, their understanding of prayer was not a space that you entered into and did all the talking. Their understanding of prayer was an intimacy that you engaged in that was divine. It was divine, it was set apart, it was holy, and it was transformative. And it was holy, and it was transformative, and it was divine, not based on what you did or didn't say, but who you were meeting with. The Moravian prayer movement was much of the same. It was entering into this pietous place of meeting with God in a way where we encountered intimacy with him. And sometimes there were prayers that were spoken, sometimes there were requests that were made, and then sometimes there was silence and solitude with God just to soak in and absorb his nature. That's what bigger, better, and beyond is all about. And again, hear me, I have to keep reiterating this because I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, I've spent 10 years of asking God for stuff with my prayer life. That was what I really was taught, like, right? Okay, here's what you do. Read your Bible and get your list and pray over everything on that list, right? And that's good and that's okay. But if all it is is asking, you're missing the encounter. Prayer is not tasks for God to handle, Prayer is theology worked out in the intimacy of his presence. I will try to say that again. Prayer is not tasks for God to handle. Prayer is, in, is theology with God worked out in the intimacy of his presence, which means this. We have to have a proper view of God. You will see, when I give you examples of bigger prayer, you will see the theology of God and how much bigger and greater and more wonderful he is overcomes and overtakes any task or any concern or any request that is made by the requester. In other words, here is, if you want the cheat code to bigger, better, and beyond, honestly, all it is is the theology of God, that God is greater, God's Goodness is more than I could understand, and God loves me beyond my biggest and worst sins, right? So let me, let me say it better. I have a, a, a mantra for us. We always use a mantra. God is bigger than anything I face. He is better than I can imagine. He loves me beyond my worst sins. It's a theology of God, his greatness, his goodness, and his grace. Applied to prayer. Why? Because prayer is where we meet with him. Prayer is where we experience him. You're getting it now, right? Like, who's going to show up to a meeting unprepared? 
You're going to show up to a meeting and don't know who you're meeting with? going to show up to a meeting and have no notes, no prep, no due diligence and be like, well, hey, I came here with a few things that I need. <laughs> what? Right? But this is a perspective shift. This is a perspective shift when it comes to prayer. I'll just throw this out there because he's one of my favorites to read about prayer. There was a man, Eugene Peterson, translated the Bible into the message paraphrase. And he's, he's one of the most brilliant guys when it comes to intimacy with God. He's done extensive writing on this. This was a man who understood what communion with God was, what intimacy with God was, what prayer was beyond my list of needs. He's a great read in this area. But this is a perspective shift for us because over and over and over, and look, I am preaching to, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with you. I am the chief asker when I have something that I really need. I've got two children with special needs. You know how many times I've prayed for their healing in different ways? I'm like, well, maybe if I ask God differently, he'll he'll come through on this one. You know, I'll just change it here, right? I'll quit saying Down syndrome and say trisomy 21. See if God hears that a little better, right? See if he catches the, right? And I've just asked and asked and asked. But can I tell you something? The transformational moments I had in prayer was not when I was asking God to heal one of my children. It was when I submitted that to his nature that was so much bigger and better and beyond anything that I could ever ask him for. It wasn't when I said, God, heal my kids. God, heal my kids. God, heal my kids. It was when I said, God, you know my heart. I want you to heal my kids. But more than that, I want to experience you. I want you in a bigger way, in a better way, in a greater way. And if that means you do, you do. If that means you don't, you don't. But I just trust in you that you are so much bigger than what I want. That's the change that we're making. That's the the switch of the lens, if you will, when it comes to prayer. I, uh, I, one, of, one of my favorite, I, I wrote about this in the ebook. We did a, a free ebook for you. You can get it on Sermon Notes if you click Sermon Notes and download it if you haven't yet. But one of the stories in there um, is about a moment where, for me, I'll, I'll back up. I've got a rule for myself that I'm not allowed to buy expensive things for myself. I'm just not because I've had too many experiences where the more money I spend on it, when it gets messed up, the more frustrated that I get, right? I'm a Facebook marketplace type of guy. I'm like, I'll just buy it from somebody else and then I won't be as mad if something gets messed up on it. And the thing that really turned the corner for me with this was sunglasses. I was 16 years old. You know, at 16, I made $5.25 an hour. Yeah, I'm looking at all you younger people in here. I made $5. When I got the quarter bump to $5.50, I thought I was getting it. That's when you like go back to work and you're like, hey, did you get the quarter bump? I'm at $5.50. No, I'm still at $5.25. What's going on? And you're like, ah, yeah, I know, man. Like, I spent my entire summer working to buy a $199 pair of Maui Gem sunglasses. Because at the time, you had the Maui Gems. You were just, you were there, you know, you had arrived. All my friends were like, man, we're going to get some Maui gem. So I bought these Maui gem sunglasses, and they had this brown, and they were, you know, Polaroids and, every, Polaroids and everything. It was super cool. And so when I got them, my buddy's dad had a boat, and we all went out on the boat, and we were riding around with him on the boat. And I will, I can still, like, it still makes me mad. I can still 
feel the moment when those sunglasses were ripped off of my face. So I'm just like, they're like, my, all my buddies are like, man, he's got the gems, man, he's got the gems. And I'm like, yeah, check out my gems, right? And I take off running, jumped off the side of the boat, swan dive, beautiful dive, right into the middle of the lake. And right when I hit the water, I felt the glasses rip from my face and like roll. And I, I'm trying to grab them as I'm torpedoing to the bottom of the lake. I'm trying to grab these glasses and I couldn't get them. And I came up out of the water and I spent the next two hours diving down there, feeling in the mud, trying to find these glasses. I came out and I said, I am never buying. And I spent my whole summer, every dime of $5.50 an hour, working to buy those sunglasses. And they're gone like that. I'm never buying an expensive pair of sunglasses again. And I didn't. I'm telling you, I am a Valero guy, a Burlington, Marshalls, wherever. 12 bucks is too expensive for me in a pair of sunglasses. I'm a $9.99, catch them on sale, $5.99 type of guy. Like those, those are the sunglasses that I'm in, right? So I go to this fishing trip in Louisiana, and I'm with my friends, and it's, the sun is just coming up over the water, and everyone's got their sunglasses on, we're riding out, and we're sight casting redfish in these little bayous. And Justin, our guide, <clears throat> pulls up. And he slows the boat way down. And he says, you guys see the reds? You guys see the reds? And all my friends are popping up. And they're like, oh, yeah, I see one tailing right there. Oh, yeah, 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 I see the redfish over there schooling over there. I can see them over there. And I'm looking around. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? I can't see anything, right? Like, and, and one of my buddies, Marty, he looked at me. He said, Luke, where did you get those sunglasses? I said, I got them at Valero on the way here, dude. They're like nine bucks. I think they had like a WWE superhero on the side of them flexing. I'm just like, what do you mean? I just got them. And one of my buddies took off his glasses. And it was Bryant. And he said, here, put these on. And I put them on. And they were those Costa Del Mar, like fishing sunglasses, ultra polarized. Like it was like the heavens opened and the angels came down when I put these on. The sun hit these lenses. And the whole world lit up, right? I was like, wow, I can see. I was like, look, the fish. And they were like, that's what we were saying, right? Like, you can see now. But that's my goal for you this morning with prayer and for the next two weeks is to put some lenses on your eyes that help you see prayer beyond casting these prayers into murky water that you can't see hoping you catch something, but into a space where you see God more clearly. So you meet with him in communion with him and experience him differently. And by seeing him clearly, experiencing him differently, it transforms the way you communicate with him to a space of, of theology really worked out. Because prayer for us has to become deeper than asking. It has to become more than asking. I, I was telling somebody this the other day. Every time I enter into prayer, my theology of God should be better. Like, I shouldn't enter into prayer and then walk out wondering if he's big enough to handle what I've been asking for for years, or curious if he's going to be able to step in in this area, or upset because I haven't got what I've been asking him for long. Prayer should not leave me wandering and curious and anxious. But if it revolves around me and the central focus of it is my problems and my stuff and what I need from God, there are times where I leave prayer anxious. There are times where I leave prayer worried. That should never be the case. That is saying I'm meeting with the God of the universe and I leave concerned. 
I leave worried because we don't understand what we're engaging in with God. It is more than asking. It is a theology worked out, and that theology worked out will transform the way we ask. Okay, let's dive in. We, I gave you the mantra, right? God is bigger than anything I face. He's better than I can imagine. He loves me beyond my worst sins. I'll say it again. God is bigger than anything I face. He's better than I can imagine. He loves me beyond my worst sins. When that is the foundational focus of our prayer, everything else comes into alignment. When I go to God in prayer and I say, God, you are bigger than anything I face, all of a sudden the things I was going to ask him for change. And the way I was going to ask him changes. When I go to prayer and I say, God, you are better than I can imagine, all of a sudden the things I thought I deserved come into submission to his greatness and his goodness. All of a sudden, what I, what I wanted from him is no longer about what I want from him, but what I'm willing to submit to him and what I'm willing to walk with him in. When I go to him and say, God, you love me beyond my worst sins, all of a sudden I haven't disqualified myself from his presence. I think too many people go into prayer and instantly disqualify themselves because of their sin and say, I don't deserve this. How do I pray? I'm not good enough to pray. I haven't been good enough to pray. Why would I enter into prayer? I can't wait till week three. If you skip next week, whatever, don't miss week three because we're talking about a God who loves you beyond your worst sins and how that impacts your prayer life. And you would be shocked. The people who were sinful, murderous, adulterous, absolute disasters in sin who came to God in prayer and he welcomed them with open arms. But for today, let's stick with bigger, okay? Three areas we're going to go with bigger. One, I'm going to just kind of give you a perspective of how big God is. I'm going to give you a couple of examples um, from David, and then we're going to end with how epic he is. Number one, God is bigger than anything I face. <clears throat> Start at the beginning. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God Thank you. He created. We have at the very beginning of all things, the beginning of everything, God created. It was his creative hand that created everything. So in the beginning, God created. Revelation twenty two twenty one. at the end, what does God do? May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. He finishes with a blessing of grace. So he begins it and he ends it. He starts it with creation. He finishes it with the blessing. He starts all things and he finishes all things. What does the middle look like? Here it is. Paul writes Colossians 1, 15 through 16, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything and was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. John, in the first five verses of his gospel, gives a prologue to Christ, and this is what he writes. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. 
God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. In other words, God created in the beginning, he will bless it in the end and in the interim, All things are in his hands. He created it so that he could sustain it, and all things that are created were created through him, and nothing that was made was made without him and without his hand. It is his life that gives light to all things, and there is no darkness that can extinguish those things. That is the nature of God, if you will, from beginning to end and everything in between. It is for him, it is about him, it is all done under his hand, within his power, his creation power, his blessing power, his sustaining power, his life-giving power. Now question, is that how we pray? Is that who we pray to? Do we come into prayer and say, God, you are over all things, you are in all things, you are above all things, all things are sustained through you, you are the light in the darkness, you create it, you bless it, it begins with you, it ends with you, and everything under the sun revolves around you. Now here is how I want to engage with you. Or do we come and say, do you think you can do this? Is this a possibility for you? Or Let me give you maybe an illustration. This may help. My son, he, uh, man, it's amazing. Grandparents, you show out for the young ones, but the older ones, we get forgotten now, right? Like there was a time I used to get a, a, a Christmas card from my grandparents. Now it's all gone to my children, right? Like, oh, they stole the budget. You know, I get the handwritten, thank you, Merry Christmas to you. And then they open their cards and I'm like, dang, how many 20s you got in that thing? You slide some to daddy, you know? Um, no, I, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm glad that they get it, but this was funny. So Canaan gets his card, and he opens it up, and he's got some cash in there, and, and he takes that cash, and he goes, and he buys himself a, uh, a Nerf gun. And so he's walking around the house, and he's got this Nerf gun, and he pow, pops me with it, right? And I'm like, oh, that's cute, funny, right? I'm, I'm like cooking or something. And he, he comes around the corner, and he pow, pops me again. And I'm like, okay, hey, listen, man, I'm all for a Nerf fight, but let me get this stuff finished real quick, and then we can have a Nerf fight. Comes around the corner again, and like, yeah. bow, pops me again. And I said, listen, you shoot me with that Nerf gun again, and I'm going to take it from you. You know what he said to me? You can't do that. I bought this with my own money. Isn't it cute when they get to this space? Like parents, isn't it cute? I bought this with my own money. You can't take this from me. This is my. (laughs) Put it in my hand. And he looked at me and he goes, what? And I said, put the gun in my hand. He said, that's not fair. I said, you know, fairness is, you know, subjective in this house. Put it in my hand. And he, he puts it in my hand, and he's like, you can't do that. And I was like, oh, really? You know what else I can do? Go to your room. What? You can't ground me. Not over a gun, but I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll go find out who's in charge around here. Head to your room for 30 minutes. No, I'm not. Okay, let's make it an hour. You, this is so unfair. This day, I can't stand this day. I'm upset. I'm so mad. You took that, blah, blah, blah. He just marches off, right? And I just think, oh, this is just, you know, so cute. But let me ask you something. Which one are we in prayer? Are we the child or are we the adult? Are we the kid that says, God, I want this. God, I want this. God, I I did everything I was supposed to do to get this. 
that's not fair. Why didn't I get what I want? Now I'm upset, and now I'm mad, and now I'm angry, and now I'm frustrated. Or do we recognize that God is over all things? He is in all things. He is through all things. And do we have the ability to pray like Job? God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we have this submission to God? This is the place where submission is worked out with God. When we realize he is bigger than everything that we are asking him for. When he is greater than everything and he already knows what we need. He is in all things. He's sustained in all things. And when we go to prayer, don't start with what you want. Start with who he is. What does Jesus teach us? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not help me get through to these hard-headed disciples, but you are above all things. Would you send your above all things to my space here on earth, and would you meet us here? Nobody prays these prayers like David. In fact, um, I, I'm, there's, a, there's a number of them in the ebook that you can check out. Let me give you one today. Uh, Psalm 8. This is, Psalm 8 was written by David when he was marching down to fight against Goliath. He had already said, I'm the one. Goliath was calling out anybody with the children of Israel who had enough backbone to come and fight against him. And, and David said, I'm the guy. And as he's going down, he pens this psalm. I want you to listen to this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. It sounds a lot like what we just read about God, right? What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, your majesty fills the earth. Question, did you hear him mention anything about Goliath? Did you hear him say, I'm walking down to fight this really big, ugly Philistine right now who wants to kill us, and I'm stepping into this place, and I just need you. To... No, no, no. He said, God, you are above all things. You created all things. All things are sustained in you. And what is mere man that you would look down at me? Yet you have given me authority and your majesty fills the earth. Do you see how the size of David's God changes the way he prays? The size of his God changes the way he even prays walking into specific scenarios. The bigger our God gets, the more we'll grow spiritually. You understand that? The bigger our God gets, and, and this is where we work this out in prayer. We start with the God in prayer who is bigger than everything. Your kingdom come. You are bigger and greater than everything. And would you meet us here on earth. 
The bigger he gets in prayer, the more we grow spiritually. Canaan, uh, I might as well go two for two with him, right? I owe him ice cream, and you guys tell him every time I mention his name, he gets ice cream. So now he's on four scoops. He counts both services. Um, Canaan, right? Like, no, 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 Dad. You mentioned me twice in two services. That's four. Um, Canaan got promoted in jiu-jitsu, and he's been training hard for a really long time. He's, he's great at jiu-jitsu. He is a gray belt with a white stripe through it and three stripes on his belt. He is just, he's ready, man. Every week he wants to know if he's going to get his black belt that week. I'm like, you're about 25 years away, but keep working, you know? You're on your way. You're on your way, pal. But something happened in his, in his jiu-jitsu journey. So when he was seven years old, he's a massive seven-year-old. And he's not just tall, but he's very, very strong. He's incredibly athletic. So he was in the four to seven class that they have there. And he was just smashing all the kids his age. Like, it was kind of uncomfortable to watch. It was like, oh, man, I bet that hurt that kid, right? Um, and I would even, like, I had this hand signals that we would do where I would, I would tell him to tone it down or I'd tell him to pull guard or something to just, he was just, he was animal, right? And so finally the coach kicked him out of the, the class. He, he had just turned seven and coach was like, you can't come to this class anymore. So he gets promoted to the eight to like 12 or 13 class. And I, I will just tell you, like, and you parents know this, there is a massive difference in a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Like a massive difference. I'm not even talking about size. I'm talking about mindset. I'm talking about maturity. I'm talking about experience. Like, so he gets promoted to this class. He's the youngest one in there, and he just gets rocked for, I mean, probably about nine months. He's just, he's, he's getting beat up on pretty good, and he's getting discouraged. He doesn't want to, he, sometimes he doesn't want to keep going. He's like, Dad, I just, I go in there, I went from winning everything to like, and, and, and he's just, he's upset, right? And then he, he starts growing, and then they start pushing him, and he's getting stronger, and he's getting bigger, and he's learning more technique, and now he holds his own really well. He's submitting belts that are bigger than him, and older than him, and higher belts than him. And I'm sitting with Jared, who's the professor, and he's the owner of the place. Awesome, awesome dude. And I'm telling him this story. I said, you know, this is really cool to see him get promoted, because there was a time where he was just frustrated and didn't know if it was going anywhere. And Jared said this to me, and I thought this was so good. He said, no, 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 no. He said, that's the room you want Canaan in. You want him in the room where everyone's bigger than him and everyone's stronger than him and people are more advanced than him because what it does is it forces him to grow. He said, there's not another eight-year-old in this gym that's got his size and his strength and his technique now, and it's because he was in a room that was bigger than him. Listen, we cannot be the biggest character in our prayer life. You understand me? We cannot be the biggest character in our prayer life. And our prayer life can't revolve around us and the things we need, the things we want. And the evaluation of our prayer life cannot be, I asked God for this. Did he give me what I asked for? And did I do the right thing to earn it or get it? Or will I keep asking him and hopefully change some things in my life to get more? No, the biggest character in our prayer life is our God. It is our God. It is going before him saying, you are bigger than anything I face. You are better than anything I could imagine. And you love me beyond my worst sins. And the opportunity to enter into your presence, to commune with you and experience with you, transforms me into a different person. And then we begin our prayer, right? Let's finish with Gadol. This is becoming one of my favorite Hebrew words. The word gadol, the only, there is not an English equivalent. It's a Hebrew word. The only thing close is epic. The word 
epic, right? Just to describe the most, the most epic of things, right? The, the greatest of greatest things. But that word doesn't even come close. And all throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, this word gadol attached to Elohim was a prayer that our, our Hebrew forefathers would pray. They would say gadol Elohim. Job, let me, let me read you Moses' prayer. He says in Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the Gadal Elohim, the epic, untouchable, mighty master of all things, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Listen to Job, Job 36, 26. Look, God is greater. In Hebrew, that is Gadal Elohim, Gadal, the epic God that we can understand. His years cannot be counted. Here is the cool thing about Gadol. If you were to take this word and trace it through the Hebrew Old Testament, you would see this, that over and over again, it's not just attributed to God, but it's also attributed to God's creation and to God's works. He made light, right? Or he is the God who created light, and he saw that it was good. He saw that it was Gadol. It was epic. It was better than good. It was great. Like I told you, there's no English that compares to it. So you follow Gadol through the Old Testament, and you see we have this epic God who does epic things. We have an epic God who does epic things, and he creates epic things, and there is nothing that can compare to it. And then something interesting happens. We land in the Greek New Testament, and there is not a, there is not a comparable word. There is not a word that comes close to Gadol. But what happens in our prayer life? We transition from Gadol, Elohim, to in Jesus' name. And Jesus becomes the expression and the experience of the epic God that we have called to, that we have submitted to. So in other words, when I enter into prayer, prayer should be the most epic moment of my life, the most epic experience of my life, because I am encountering the epic God who saved me, rescued me, redeemed me, and lives within me. That's why prayer should be the best moment of every day. It should be epic. Let me give you kind of an illustration that I hope will connect the dots. Um, there's a guy on the internet, Jimmy Darts, who gives away money. Who's familiar with Jimmy Darts? Anybody familiar with Jimmy Darts? No? My goodness. All right. Well, welcome to old people on Instagram. We love Jimmy Darts. <laughs> Here's what Jimmy Darts does. He does these kindness tests. And when he does these kindness tests, he'll like go up to somebody and he'll be like, hey, like he'll be, I'm here at this 7-Eleven and I really wanted to buy a Coca-Cola, but I own, it's $3 and I only got $2.89. Can I borrow 11 cents? And he finds someone down on their luck and they'll be like, yeah, here, here's 11 cents. And he'll be like, wow, that was so kind of you. Here's your 11 cents back and I want to give you $500. And they're like, what? No way. And he's like, yeah, thanks for being kind. Jesus loves you, right? Yeah, it's cute, fun, everything else. Um, so Jimmy Darts is at the Super Bowl last year and Roger Goodell, tells Jimmy, I want to give you some Super Bowl tickets to give away to somebody. So he goes and he's doing his kindness test and this is the story that unfolds. Guys, play. It was time for a kindness test to give away the Super Bowl tickets. Excuse me, man. I'm like, I'm, this hat is $21. I'm like a dollar short. 
Do you have even like a couple of quarters or something or a dollar towards it? What's your name, man? Good to meet you, bro. Do you play football? You do? Awesome. Thank you so much, ma'am. Here you go. You can have that back. I actually got $500 for you guys. There you go. You're amazing. I'm seeing the first person to help me out. Let me give you a hug. Oh, you're so kind. Why did you help me? I mean, it's just the right thing to do. We do it all the time, though. So yeah. You see somebody in need, we help. Dang, man. You're amazing, bro. I want to give you this hat, man. And I actually have one more gift for you, bro. Is that okay? There you go. We're going to the Super Bowl. We got Super Bowl tickets. We're going to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Is this crazy? Like this never happened. Y'all are amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Just really appreciate it. It's finally game day, so I picked up Jamel and his mom to go to the Super Bowl. Hello. How's it going? How you doing? What's up, buddy? How you doing, my man? You ready for the game? I got a shirt for you to wear too, if you want. Nice, my man. You're looking clean. Have you been to any NFL games before, man? Really? No. In your first time, huh? Yeah. By the way, you saw who's in the Super Bowl, right? Just want to make sure you saw that, um, you know, from Kansas City. Happy to be a Chiefs fan. Saw that. Um, what, what does Jamel say? A thousand out of ten. Best day ever. Did you hear that? It was epic. It was the best day ever. You know, when Joshua prayed to Gadal Elohim, when Job prayed to Gadal Elohim, when Ezra would pray, when Jeremiah would pray, when David would pray, when Daniel offered prayers to his awesome God who would deliver him in the face of resistance from King Darius, and he prayed, Gadal Elohim, here's what he was saying. This is the best day ever. This is the best moment ever, and this is the most epic experience ever. Entering into prayer. Prayer should be our Super Bowl. And prayer should be our Super Bowl every single day. But the only way it becomes that is if prayer no longer revolves around me, but it revolves around our God who is bigger than anything we could ever face. 